Hello, I'm Sahel Mirza, and welcome to this special episode in Series 2 of Voices of Care. I'm joined today by Siva Ananda Siva, Chief Analyst at the King's Fund. The Voices of Care series aims to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care sector and try to understand how we enable the healthcare workforce of the future. If you look at the news today, you can easily be drowned in detail, and therefore context is very important to comprehension. I'm therefore delighted to be able to speak about these bigger issues with Siva. Siva, welcome. It's uh, great to have you here, and thank you for giving us your time. Hi, glad to be here. I'm delighted to uh, have you here with us. And before we tackle some of these bigger issues, I wonder if you could take this opportunity to tell us a little bit more about the work of the King's Fund. I know that uh, you have a strategic vision that you're implementing in terms of improving health outcomes, but it'll be wonderful to hear a bit more about the vision uh, of the King's Fund. Yeah, of course. So the King's Fund, I suppose the easiest way to think of it is a think tank. So we do research on health and care policy in this country. We also run leadership programs. So whether you're early in your career, at the top of your career, we offer you leadership development. And we have particular interests in improving the health of people with the worst health outcomes, in thinking about how places and communities can come together to improve our health. And also some of the things that are foundational, like how the NHS is funded, what's the best model of doing that? Does it have enough staff? So we try and play across that that sort of research and policy space. Um, that sounds like a perfect backdrop to our first discussion. Um, the NHS is beloved in, in Britain. Uh, opinion polls are now saying that 7 out of 10 Britons think it, that it's broken. Uh, the numbers are 7.4 million waiting for elective care. Uh, the British Social Attitude Survey finds satisfaction levels at record lows. Um, in your experience covering you know, a number of years, different policy areas, just how bad is the challenge and crisis facing the sector at the moment? Yeah, I try not to be hyperbolic about it, but hand on heart, this is the worst crisis I can remember in my career. And I think it's, it's particularly bad because so many, you know, if we just look at workforce, for example, I remember, you'll remember, when the junior doctor's strike was dominating everything, dominating health policy, dominating the headlines. You know, in just the last few months and the months to come, we've had junior doctors on strike, we've had nurses and allied health professionals on strike, we've had consultants coming out on strike. So first of all, the sheer range of staff who are disaffected at the moment makes it somewhat unique. The other issue is just how deep the crisis is. You know, I remember when, uh, you know, 100, 130,000 vacancies would be unheard of. You know, that would be anathema. And we're almost at risk of normalising that as the way our health system operates. So I think you've got a wide crisis You've got a deep crisis, and unfortunately, the way out of it is really complex. Well, we're going to touch on some of those factors. There's been um, great analysis done by Chris Ham on behalf of the King's Fund, looking at the rise and decline of the NHS as he talks about it. And he uses the, the F word, if I may use it, the, the funding, <laughs> because it's important when we look at what's happening now to look at the context. And perhaps you can flesh out how did we get to this point here? Because the funding, large numbers, when you look at them in absolute numbers, 3.3 billion extra in the autumn statement last year, mm -hmm. extra funding for social care. But we have to take a bit of a broader look to understand the impact of funding decisions over the last decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were going in a different direction with the F word, but on funding, um, you know, the numbers are so big that they almost become meaningless, even, even to us probably, 150 billion. The way I think about it is, if you look back right to the start of the NHS, on average, health spending in this country rises by 4% a year after inflation, yeah? So I think that's your baseline scenario. And my rule of thumb is, if you really want to turbocharge improvements, you want to see waiting lists fall rapidly, health funding needs to increase somewhere in the 6 to 7% a year. If I look back over the last 10 years, you know, particularly 
after the coalition government came in, you had austerity politics. You're looking at funding increases of about 1% to 2% a year. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? It means basically you haven't got enough income coming into the system to cope with all the demands that you see. So what do organisations do? Try to hold down the number of staff they employ. Try to ration healthcare. And you do that and you get a COVID-19 pandemic. And the net result is record waiting lists, staff dissatisfaction and record vacancies. And quite a big hole to dig yourself out of as a healthcare system. Absolutely. And those are quite stark numbers from a 4% in real terms average increase over many decades to less than half of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things to quickly debunk, because we hear it in the rhetoric, is that one of the challenges that the NHS faces is that it's inefficient. It has Mm. lots of fat, too many managers. But I think... um, health economics research out of York suggests that actually, and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this, is that from a productivity perspective, how we define that, uh, the NHS actually fares pretty favourably with other sectors of the economy. Yeah, I agree. And I always find this discussion quite interesting because if you look at the raw data, uh, first of all, over time, the NHS performs relatively well in delivering productivity improvements, doing more, more for less or more for the same amount of resources. It compares well to other sectors of the economy. But I think the lived experience of people is it doesn't feel efficient. It doesn't feel productive if you try and get an appointment or you try to uh, you know, see your GP. So I think that's where you, you get this disconnect of people from the NHS saying it's doing more than ever before and the lived experience of people saying, well, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I'm getting the care we need. And that's where uh, I think some of the public dissatisfaction stems from. But if you, if you look at the raw numbers, I would say obviously you can do more. You can do more to reduce variation. But when we look at the data, the NHS is not an inefficient system. It is not a system that needs uh, you know, radical reform of that type. Thank you for that. And broadening the lens even further, because we live in a connected uh, world and it's important to place perhaps the context, you've done it now with the numbers looking at UK investment uh, in terms of health spending. How does uh, the spending in this country compare on international comparisons? I know it's not an easy comparison to make, but looking Mm -hmm. at OECD, EU numbers, the research indicates that if you look at the various capacity numbers, we again fall rather short Yeah, spot on. So on funding, broadly, the story is we're average at best. And you're right that it can get complicated. I tend to use different measures. So I use health spending per person adjusted for the different purchasing power of different currencies, you know, technical stuff. But you use health spending per person and we're below average when you compare us to our peers. So I'd say, uh, you know, countries like Germany, France, Spain, Italy, not, not the full basket of countries in the OECD that include Mexico. On health spending per GDP, which uh, as a share of GDP, which is sometimes used, is a bit more of a complicated picture. We were below average before the pandemic and in the first year of the pandemic, we're above average. Why is that? Well, we spent a lot of money on healthcare in the pandemic, as you would, and our GDP took a battering. But when you triangulate across all these things, we are not we are not spending vast amounts on our healthcare service. We're spending about an average amount. And as one international expert said, what do you expect? You spend an average amount on healthcare for a system that produces average at best outcomes. And Chris Ham in his paper was unequivocal showing historical examples where extra funding, where the political will is there, does deliver better patient outcomes. It's not something we're hearing com- commitments from in terms of the political rhetoric leading up to an election in the next 18 months. Yeah, it feel, I, I agree. It feels like a very different time to the sort of famous Tony Blair, most expensive breakfast in history, where, you know, we're going to get to the EU average on on spending it feels like we're quite a way off that level of commitment and ultimately you get what you pay for so it's hard to see how promises to 
transform the system, make it more prevention focused or recover performance targets like how long you wait in A&E. All of those require staff. All of that requires extra funding. And it's, you know, it sounds simplistic, but it's true. That's what history has shown us. So if the money's not on the table, the promises will have to be taken back off the table. Yeah, and political pain will perhaps flow from that. One final point on that. You talked about industrial action, unprecedented. There have been pay deals now done. It's quite important that those pay deals, in terms of how they're actually funded, from which pot they're Mm -hmm. taken, is made clear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those things that um, may sound a little bit arcane, but when you read in the newspaper, you know, new pay award for nurses, the the single biggest cost in healthcare services across the world is staff. You know, that's where you spend your money. So the pattern we've fallen into over the last, I'd say, 15 years is a government will announce a big headline increase in staff pay and then turn to the Department of Health and say, we're not necessarily going to give you any more money to fund it. Look at your budget and see if there are any efficiency savings. And what happens? Things get cut. Things like capital investment in buildings, equipment, machinery get cut. And that's, that's when you're trading off one bit of the budget against another, when all bits of the budget are essential. Now, thank you for explaining that, because I think that's not always made clear uh, in the policy pronouncements. And if we can dig deeper into workforce, um, mm. as you said, it's the biggest element of budget. It's uh, the key to delivering the vision of the long-term plan, etc. Uh, I want to talk about buildings um, mm. and the physical structure is something that's not often covered uh, in mainstream media because they have a huge impact on the well-being and productivity of staff. The National Audit Office, I think, reported a couple of years ago showing uh, that actually per person capital spending is far lower. This is capital spending in the UK than compared to uh, comparative countries. And I think you wrote very stridently, uh, poor NHS buildings equals poor NHS care. Yeah, I've got, you know, and you'll have to probably cut me off because I, I tend to go off on one on this. <laughs> but I think, you know, I take, it's one of these things that sounds really boring, capital investment in buildings and equipment. For me, it's about stewardship. You know, the, the decisions you make now on whether you need a new hospital in Whips Cross or Epsom or St. Helier are legacy decisions. They'll be there in 15, 25 years, 50 years, those buildings, if you do them correctly. And so it's a real question of long-term planning. And we get it really wrong in this country. Back to international comparisons, we lag far behind other countries, and we have done for 20 years in how much we spend on buildings and equipment. And you can see it as a result. You can see knackered estate across the whole of the NHS. And the result is poor patient care, poor staff experience. And, you know, just one, one example... I was talking to a friend of mine who works for one of these hospitals that is hoping to rebuild, you know, knock down its estate, rebuild its estate. Their gutters are so broken that when it rains, you can see the water sort of dripping through the wall. And part of the nursing handover is, you know, when the water gets to about this level, start unplugging equipment because it's going to reach a socket. Now, can you imagine that you're doing a nursing handover over, uh, look after this patient, look after that patient, and look at that line on the wall. That's the state of some of the buildings we have in the NHS. Now, that's shocking to, to hear. Um, and it's a little bit of a tick, not putting words in your mouth, but a bit of a ticking time bomb. I mean, 10 years ago, I think the estimates were to repair the estate and maintain around $4 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, It's skyrocketed into $10 billion plus yes. now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it doesn't look as if we're getting commitments. Mr. Starmer spoke very eloquently recently about Labour Party's commitment if it gets into power. But capital spending, again, was, it sounded as if it was a, a side issue. 
Yeah, and I mean, ticking time bomb, runaway train, all of these things are true. It's, I think it's a really bad sign that pretty much every government of all hues that comes in says we've got a new hospital building programme. You shouldn't need to have a hospital building programme nationally if you're maintaining your estate as, as it needs. You know, you don't get things deteriorate to the point where you need to suddenly splurge billions in a boom and bust way. So, yes, I think a rolling programme of investment, commitments now given that, you know, whoever's going to build these hospitals wants that commitment, wants that certainty. Unless you have those, we're going to be having this same conversation in five years' time. I feel. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I think observers, when they look at the NHS, with the access to staff internationally and the fact that actually it's politically extraordinarily popular to commit to more doctors and nurses and other um, uh, workforce uh, numbers. I want to talk about the issue of workforce planning or the lack of workforce planning. The government tried to resist the requirement to be inserted in the Health and Care Act to publish projections around this. That's been reversed. There's been a commitment to a, a plan and some numbers. How important is it? It is fiendishly difficult to predict the requirement for staff, but the absence of this, how important has that been as a contributing factor to where we are now? A huge factor. I think, you know, there are two things we're, we're missing here. One is the agreed estimate of how many staff we need, that projection. And it's hugely important. Lots of people have built models to forecast it. All the models are broadly in the same ballpark of we need significantly more staff. And then the second bit is the plan, the funded plan for how you're going to get them. And I think if we, you know, at the moment, a good case scenario would be at least getting the projections. Well, that's helpful, but only up to a point, unless you can say, yes, we need 200,000 more staff by the end of the next five-year period. And here's the plan now, given that unless we start training those staff or recruiting them, we won't have them in place by the time we need them. Unless you've got that funded plan alongside the projections, I fear we'll know how many we need, but not how we're going to get them. And the call from Bill Morgan, for example, who mm -hmm. wrote on behalf of uh, the King's Fund, uh, was for a transparency, obviously, and an independent body to project these things. Do you think that's an idea that's going to get political weight? It doesn't sound like it. And we're hearing about a workforce plan that's been committed by Mr Hunt. Um, fully funded is a different topic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so on the independent projections, I think the independence is going to be incredibly useful and incredibly helpful. Uh, I think that the tenor is more, let's have another organisation independently verify the government's projections rather than an OBR style, completely mm. independent arrangement. But I think, you know, it'll quite quickly become clear if the projections are right or wrong. And then the second bit on the funding, you know, to a certain extent, I can, I can buy the argument of you don't want to tie a future government's hand. If it takes 15 years to train a consultant, you can't, you know, necessarily say here's the 15 years of funding that you would need. But at the same time, we talk about a new hospitals program that runs until 2030. On defence and other industries, you get this long-term certainty you need. If the number one issue is not having enough staff in the NHS, I don't think they're very good arguments for why you can't at least turbocharge the first few years of the plan, put the funding in place. Hopefully somebody's listening uh, to you as you speak. Um, talking about turbocharging and the need for innovation, Health Education England um, published, I should call them National Health, uh, uh, NHS England now, mm. of course, um, but they published um, a report um, in May looking at the role of digital technology, its use, and also the use of digital platforms for learning. You've talked about how long it takes to train doctors and nurses. I guess there's also a call, a parallel path for more innovation um, and uh, multivalent pathways to train clinicians that we need. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is another part of the workforce plan that won't probably garner much headlines in, uh, in the mainstream press. But 
I think is equally important. Yes, we need more doctors and nurses, but the curricula, how we train them, um, everything from the role of leadership, the role of business management, but also the method of training using greater techno you know, technology so you can do more simulation-based training, for example. The opportunities where digital technology can unlock new training pathways that maybe in some cases will mean more people can be trained, but certainly people can be trained in a different way, potentially a quicker way. So yeah, that, that I think will be a huge part of the plan. Hopefully we'll see, we'll see some details. Bill Morgan also talked around the idea that we have a tendency to undertrain. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also said there had been an absence in the strategic use of international recruitment. There's plenty of international clinicians in the workforce, always have been. What's your role, um, what's your view on the role of international recruitment, particularly because it's, it's dependent on so many factors, including migration policy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the reality check is, as a healthcare system, we are and will be for the foreseeable future heavily dependent on international recruitment. People will say we need to get uh, a stronger domestic pipeline, that's true, but the reality check is we'll need international recruitment. I think the NHS is getting better, more strategic. It wasn't that long ago that I remember talking to individual chief execs of hospitals who were going to the same cities to recruit from the same pool and didn't even know that the other person was there at the same time. So we're getting a bit more coordinated. But I think this is a good example where, you know, people like me, it's easy for me to say we need a concerted workforce policy. The Department of Health has to negotiate with the Home Office around immigration. You know, something simple like changing pensions arrangements that has to negotiate with HMRC. So that's one reason why this, you know, workforce plan has potentially been so fiendishly hard to publish because it uses different parts of government. But ultimately, if you want the staff the NHS needs, international recruitment is a huge component of that. Now, that's obviously an immediate imperative given the vacancies you've talked about in the NHS, um, let alone social care at 165,000, which we may touch upon if we have a moment. Um, I I wanted to talk about um, a larger um, policy suggestion from Chris Ham, which is that they also need to, we need to moderate demand Mm -hmm. uh, on the NHS. It's disproportionately hospital-based compared to other systems. And the whole trajectory from the five-year forward view to the long-term plan has been to move into community and primary care provision. I think no one's arguing about that. The challenge there, and get your views, that the proportion of NHS budget that's devoted to that segment of provision has fallen from 11%, I think, to 8 So there's still, again, an important element of funding that transition. Yeah, and... You know, I think this move of care into the community and more preventative focus is one of those where health system leaders and, and national bodies find themselves caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Because on the one hand, everyone accepts we will, it is simply not possible for us to build enough hospitals in this country to cope with the rising demand we'll have from a changing and aging population. You know, there, there wouldn't be enough space everywhere would be a hospital. But at the same time, you know, the promise has always been there'll be parallel funding. You know, we'll fund hospitals as they try and improve A&E performance, improve routine surgery, and we'll build up the community services so that they're there when and can take more of the load. I think, I think there have been a few big problems in when I look back at efforts to do this. The first is we, we expect the wrong thing. So we expect moving care into the community to save money or reduce activity in hospitals. I think the evidence is pretty weak that it can do that. You can get better healthcare outcomes for every pound you're investing in the service, but you're not suddenly going to be able to close hospital wards if you pull it right. So let's, let's get our expectations right. And the second thing is you can't do everything. You know, I think a healthcare system can do one big thing at any given moment in time. So I think it's a fallacy to believe you can keep the hospital sector booming and doing more and more 
and beef up community services. That's where the tough choice comes in. It's politicians saying to the public, there'll be this period where we're beefing up services. I mean, you'll get care close to your home. The care will be more integrated around your needs. You might avoid going to a hospital, but the trade-off is we're going to be spending less on hospitals. And you'll feel it. You'll know it's happening. But this is what long-term stewardship means when you're transforming how a healthcare system operates. Well, we'll see if we'll uh, be blessed with such candour as we approach the election in the next 18 months. One final point, you've talked about integration and the move, of course, to uh, community-based care. We've had a year now of the integrated care systems uh, with the statutory footing. I want to touch upon their role, finally, um, and the promise that they hold for workforce across the silos, NHS and social care. We talked about it earlier. Social care, it's a big topic, 165,000 vacancies. But do you see this as an opportunity under the label of integration to perhaps tackle, if not via a plan, but at least a propensity to solve across health and social care workforces? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, every once in a while, I've got to admit, I get quite cynical over how much we're expecting systems to, to do. And I also get a little bit worried about you know, suddenly every big problem becomes a system problem when, you know, UCLH, all these billion-pound organisations are the employers. They're the ones who employ staff. So you don't want to abdicate responsibility. But when I do get really cynical, I remember two sets of conversations that I overheard between chief execs. Uh, one conversation, you know, years ago was basically one chief exec leaning over to the other and saying, I wanted you to hear from me first. I'm taking four of your a &E consultants. You're going to find out about it. But you know, you're hearing it from me first. And then to see a similar conversation years ago to when we've had more system working, which was basically two chief execs saying, you're wrote it. you've got, you need 24 A&E consultants and you've got 16 across your trust. I need eight and I've got four. So neither of us is in a good place. What if we were to think about a rotor for our entire system, our entire patch? Would we have people in the right place? What if we were to share resources, because I'm not using my CT and MRI scan all the time. What if your staff wanted to use some of it? That idea of resources belonging to the people in the system rather than a fiefdom, I think is, is still working its way through the system where I'm learning a lot of behaviours, but is incredibly powerful. It's an incredible opportunity for efficiency, better workforce planning, better workforce experience. Well, I think that on that spirit of collaboration, uh, which gives us hope, I uh, want to thank you for your time uh, and your uh, wisdom, Sip, and uh, I'm really grateful for your insights. Likewise, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about how we're truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.